Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to be in this space together as a community. Lord, we, uh, we want to echo what Dave uh, just shared with us, that, um, that you invite us into this space every single week, regardless of where we've been the week before, the year before, the years before. Uh, Lord, that you, that you desire to be near to us, to, to let us know we're valued and loved, and that tomorrow is a new day, a new day where we, in which we can try to do a little bit better than we did yesterday. So Lord, we pray that you meet each of us where we are with whatever we're wrestling with today, whether, whether it is rejoicing over, uh, over wonderful things, we pray you meet us in that, or mourning over difficult things, uh, pray you meet us there as well, that ultimately we can hear your voice through your word uh, and, and leave with a deeper love for you that drives us to a deeper love towards each other. Pray all these things in your name, amen. Oh. So, if you've been with us through this year, we've been slowly working our way through the book of Genesis, and we've been doing that um, by breaking it down into little mini-series. So, um, if, uh, each little section has its own little theme, and so we have come to the end of one of our sections. So, for the past month and a half or so, uh, we've been working through the story of Jacob, um, particularly through the lens of forgiveness. And so, we've seen a lot of different things as we've been on that journey uh, we, we saw, we saw the, the effects of trauma in our lives. From the very beginning of Jacob's life and, 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 and the end of Isaac's life, there, there's this trauma that, that falls into that space. We've, seen, we've talked about forgiveness in relationship to debt, right? That, that things being owed to a person or, or, or from a person. We saw the, the effects of the victim cycle, of this space of that I've been hurt, so now I'm going to hurt you, but then that person hurts you because they've been hurt, and it creates this victim cycle. I'm the victim, and I, just, I can justify the things that I'm doing or saying. We looked at the rippling effects that that can have when we, when we choose not to forgive, but instead continue that, that, that victim cycle. It doesn't just affect our, ourselves, but it affects people around us. It affects uh, innocent bystanders. It affects a lot of different people in that space. We closed this series talking about wrestling with God through these things because we realized forgiveness is one of those things that is, that's easy to talk about and incredibly difficult to actually do. To actually look at the debt that we feel owed both physically and emotionally and release it isn't easy. And sometimes that can create all these other feelings inside of us as well. And so we talked about how we wrestle with God in those spaces. We saw that Jacob wrestles with God uh, and then his name is actually changed to Israel by God. We talked about how important that is in our faith life in general, that the moment that God gets to define and name his people forever, he chooses the name Israel, which literally means to wrestle with God. That a defining characteristic of a person who follows Jesus is that they wrestle with God and with each other and with how we do these things together. And then finally, last week, we looked at reconciliation. Now, the process of forgiveness itself is hard, but, it's, but that's typically done uh, solo. I have, to, I have debt that I feel that I need to release, so I do that for myself. Reconciliation, on the other hand, requires two people. It requires both people to meet in that middle space, to wrestle together with the hurts that each of them have felt, and hopefully take steps moving forward together. We talked about how reconciliation and forgiveness are different, uh, and reconciliation is even harder than just forgiving. It's been an admittedly heavy series. I, I think we can all agree on that. Each week has just been, it's been a lot of different things. 
But I do want to commend a lot of you. I have, I, I've had some fantastic conversations with many of you through this series as you actually are wrestling with these things. As the brokenness and the broken relationships that we all have in our lives, a lot of you have taken this stuff really seriously uh, and been wrestling with what it looks like for you either to forgive somebody that you need to forgive or to work towards reconciliation with someone that you're in, in conflict with. <clears throat> it's not easy, but it is super important stuff. But like I said, we've broken the book of Genesis down into mini-series, and last week we wrapped up Jacob. But at the end of each mini-series, we've been doing something called In Practice, where we take the look back at the entire series and see if there's some other way we can apply it, we can put it into practice. Today we're going to do that again, uh, but, but in a way that's a little different than some of the previous weeks. Not dramatically, but a little bit. Like I said, the series has been on forgiveness. It's focused on the forgiveness that we offer to one another, but... There's another aspect of forgiveness that actually roots the entire thing. It's, it's both the simplest concept in Scripture and maybe the hardest one to believe for a lot of us, uh, and that's God's forgiveness of you. I, I've kind of been amazed how often people's stories for the next step tend to mirror the thing we're talking about. Dave and I didn't coordinate that. I didn't know what he was going to say, and yet it, it kind of does anyway. The idea that Dave said, God doesn't care about your past is going to come up a lot today, actually. And so I want to talk about that today, and I want to do it by taking a look at a parable of Jesus. So we're going to actually jump out of Genesis, and we're going to go to the book of Luke today. Uh, it's pro this parable we're going to look at is probably one of the most well-known parables that Jesus ever told. My guess is most of you have heard it before. Uh, it's a parable, um, like I said, that gets told often. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And we're going to try to look at it through the lens of forgiveness. So let's just start by diving in. Luke 15. And I want to start at verse 1, actually, and then we'll jump to verse 11. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jumping to verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth on wild living. I want to pause there for a minute and I want to point out a couple of concepts that, that pop out right away. First, I wanted to start with verse 1, which is not actually part of the parable we're looking at today. But it gives us a context into why, that, why Jesus is telling this parable at all. Uh, it's, it's really important for us to see, I think, as well, because this whole thing um, <clears throat> kicks up, uh, the, the, whole, the whole prodigal son story, there's a couple other parables that come before it, but the prodigal son story kicks off with a group of church people, I mean, I'm sorry, religious leaders, looking at, at Jesus and asking, what is he doing with those people? Jesus is hanging out with this group of people and, the, and a group of religious leaders, which in your mind, I made a joke about it, but you should be thinking about church people, religious people, leaders in the community that way, are asking the question, what are you doing with those people, the tax collectors and sinners? And I think it's important for us just to acknowledge that idea, that that's where we're starting this whole conversation for two reasons. Reason number one is to make sure we're not doing the same thing. There are a lot of people who believe that, that this still is how the church is. 
that, they see, that, we, that we see ourselves one way and we see other people who aren't here as those people. Unfortunately, it's a prominent thing in our culture still today where we go, yeah, we're, we're here for everybody except if you look like that or you act like this or you believe that. If that's something that, we're, that you're wrestling with, you need to hear the beginning of this story because it's exactly what the religious leaders are doing to Jesus. What are you doing with those people? But the other reason I wanted to start there is I think there's probably some of you here who view yourself as one of those people. That you're in this space, and sure, there are the good Christians, and then there's you in your mind. You're really a second-class Christian in your mind. That's not me saying that. These are internal conversations. It's easy to view ourselves as one of those people Two, if that's you this morning, I want you to pay attention to verse 1. The religious people gave them that label, but Jesus himself is actually with them, spending time with them. So if you're viewing yourself as one of those people this morning, realize that, that that's not a bad space to be. It's the space where Jesus is actually with you. So with those, both those things in mind, then Jesus tells a story. He tells a story about a man who has two sons. The young son comes up to his dad and asks for his inheritance. Now, this is a big deal uh, because, first of all, in this culture, to ask for your inheritance, uh, one, is incredibly disrespectful to your father. Uh, That's not something you would do. Also, incredibly insulting. Essentially, what the younger son is saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. That's how the father would perceive this. I have inheritance coming, but the problem is you're still alive. If you weren't, I'd have it. So can I have it now? And let's just pretend like you're dead. That's what the younger son is saying to his dad, an incredibly disrespectful thing, an incredibly hurtful thing. But the father gives him what he wants. He gives him his inheritance, his portion of the inheritance. The story continues by saying saying the young son then heads off to a distant country. Now, One of the ways that we can understand this phrase in Hebrew is that distant country is based on proximity, right? I am here, and there is a distant space far away, right? Hudsonville, a distant country, right? I don't know. You know what I mean, the proximity. Uh, And that that very well may be what's trying to be conveyed, but there's definitely something else that rides with it as well. In the Hebrew mindset, and particularly with this word, a distant country isn't only proximity and may not even be primarily proximity. Uh, as much as it is worldview. So where Hudsonville might be a distant country, or a country uh, uh, Ohio is a different worldview, right? Like, it's literally closest you can get to hell on earth, I'm, ass- I'm assuming, right? We all agree with that? No? All right, jokes, sorry. Anybody here from Ohio? Phew. Good, good, sorry. Ohio's fine, I guess. It's not. All right. Um, Losing the thread here, losing the thread. Anyway, the the point being that the distant country uh, can be based on proximity, but it it can also and very often is based on worldview. That you're going to a place that holds an entirely different worldview than where you are. Um, To kind of illustrate that point, I want to show you a couple pictures. So first, this picture here. This is a picture from Israel uh, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, which is also where Jesus is telling this story. It's a place called Chorazim. 
Uh, it's a small little town um, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. You can see, I wish this picture wasn't so dark up there, but you can see that the houses are made out of bricks. They're relatively small. This is a, a, little, a village unit, so it's more than one house, but it's a really small kind of, uh, of space here. Um, how the, how the, the Israelites, or the, how the Jewish people would live on the west side of the Sea of Galilee were in little units called insulas, right? Uh, what an insula was, was an extended family unit uh, that functioned like a village, right? So in, in Jewish culture, uh, dad builds a house, something like this, right? And then when, this, when his son gets old enough, he builds another house right on top next to it. Uh, and you continue to expand your community that way with two or three different families. Uh, the, you know, eventually you start to specialize with some small shops and things like that. But it's a very, very tight-knit community, very small. Uh, and, it's, and one of the key characteristics of an insula is that everybody in the community looks out for each other. There's often family ties in this, in this space. Uh, if one person is struggling, the others carry the weight. It kind of just is this thing that is a, it sustains itself in that way. You're always part of this insula. When Jesus is telling the story of the prodigal son, he's talking about someone who would live in a place like this. The father, the young son, the older son, uh, would live in a small insula community. He's talking about a group of Jewish people here. So, that's where the story starts, particularly in the minds of the first hearers, in these small villages, small insular communities like this. Well, the west side of the Sea of Galilee is a different story. Or the, sorry, the east side of the Sea of Galilee is a different story. So when it says the younger son sets off for a distant country, it honestly might be, only, in their minds, they may only be thinking about walking to the other side of the lake. Because uh, we say Sea of Galilee, but the Sea of Galilee is pretty small. You can see across the whole thing. And so you go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and you can get to a city called Bethshan, which is actually here. One of the largest cities in something known as the Decapolis, which is a, it's a group of 10 Greek cities. So we came from that, the insula that we were just at, and on the other side of the river, we can get to a city called Bethshan, which is a, a Roman city. Uh, it's, again, one of the largest cities in the Decapolis. You may notice some landmarks in here that are a little bit different from what we were just looking at. You can see there's two different, uh, walk, or two different like, uh, streets, avenues, with, that are lined with pillars. So on the right side there, you see all those pillars. Uh, on the left side, you see another set of pillars. Uh, that would have been a market street. I wish I had thrown the picture up now, but I, I, I didn't. It's not on there. Inside of that market street, if you could flip to the next one, um, it looks like this. It's hard to see. If you go a little bit further down and actually up on the other side of that wall, you'd actually see that that market street was actually paved in mosaic. Little teeny little pieces of colored rock uh, that were artistic and beautiful. Right? So you have this mosaic street lined with pillars. There would have been shops on either side uh, for you to buy anything that you could think of in the ancient world. Uh, the city is a dramatically different kind of experience in that way. So you've got these big pillared streets. If you go to the next slide, you also have large amphitheaters. So, right, so we, you're in this space here, and you can see uh, there is, uh, they would do there was theater, there were plays, there were games, all these different things in this amphitheater space. Actually, not that far away was a small coliseum as well for the, the, for the more violent games in that space. If we can go back to that first big picture. We really have the contrasting of two different worldviews in this space. In the insula, we have a small community that we look out for each other, we care for each other, that we take care of our own. 
And then the young son leaves for a distant country, again, maybe proximity, but definitely worldview, and goes to this other space where it says he squandered his wealth and wild living. You see, Bethshan can offer things that Chorazim can't. Bethshan has a market, like we just talked about. They have theater, they have games, which comes with gambling and violence and all of that kind of stuff. There is a full gym there, right? So in the ancient world, you have a gym, including a sauna. Right, there's a, there was a, it, that part is amazing. You have this ancient sauna there that you would hang out in the midst of that space too. They have baths. They had plumbing, which is a big deal. Right? They actually had a public restroom, which may not sound like that big of a deal now, uh, but then huge, right, where the sewage would actually be taken out of the city. Uh, they had um, so markets, games, baths, gyms. Uh, they... Um, I mean, let's just be honest, they had brothels. They had all of the things that a Roman city would have that you don't have in a place like Chorazim. You have a space where you can experience the pleasures of the world that the world has to offer in a way that you can't in any of the smaller cities on the other side of the lake. And so when it says he goes to a place like this and squanders his inheritance on wild living, that's what it's talking about. He's going to a place, whether it's Bashan or a place, no, it's a parable, so it's not a real person, but it, in their minds, whether he's going to Bashan or a place like Bashan, he can go there to gamble, to race, to shop, to experience the gym, the sauna, the baths, all of these different things that the world says, this is how you find fulfillment. And so that's what our young son is doing. But there's significance to that because he has just told his father, I wish you were dead so I could have the inheritance. That's insulting, obviously. Then by going here and using that inheritance in a space like this, what he's also telling his father is I also reject your worldview. I reject what you think is valuable. I reject what you think is meaningful and significant because I'd rather go to a place like this. This is how it's supposed to work. Not like that. Insulas are boring. They don't have gyms, they don't have saunas, they don't have brothels, they don't have those things. Bashan does. That's where I think uh, I reject your idea of fulfillment and I chase my own. Who needs the insula? Who needs my dad's way? I have all the community that I need here, the younger son feels. And the story continues. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. He went and hired himself out, a, out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Pause there for one more second. It's an interesting subtext that rides in this as well. The distant country loved him while he had money, he was able to enjoy the wilds of that particular city, but when he ran out, so did they. The young son runs out of money and finds himself in the lowest of low places, especially if you're a Jewish person. It's not an accident that he's working in a pig pen. If you're familiar with Jewish culture, pigs are unclean. Uh, they're also, they also represent everything that's wrong with foreign culture, right? Whenever you're looking at pigs, immediately they trigger uh, uh, thoughts about what Roman culture would be from a Jewish perspective. And so what we have here is that he, is a young, the young son is starving, and to that community, pigs are more valuable than he is. That's what he's experiencing. He's been sent out to feed the pigs. He'd actually love to eat what the pigs are eating, but the people say, nah, we'd rather feed the pigs than you. It's the height of his situation right now. 
That's what happens next. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. The young son realizes he's in a bad spot, and so he decides to go back home. But I want to pause here for just a second and notice a few things before we get there as well. This whole thing kicks off by the young son reflecting on what he's done, sitting with the weight of that, with the things that he had done in his life to get to the place that he was, which is in the lowest of lows. Again, he'd wished his father's death. He'd lived a life in complete rebellion to the way his father taught him. He'd squandered what was given, and now he's sleeping with the pigs, which has got to be an embarrassing thing. He leaves going, Dad, I know a better way, only to find himself in the worst way he could imagine. Two, he's finally realized that things would be better back with Dad. But did you notice what he assumes? I'm going to go back to Dad but clearly I can't go back to dad as a son. I need to go back as a servant. I wonder if there's some of us here today that feel like that. Maybe you chase some of the things in the same way the younger son did, whether it's wealth or power or pleasure or entertainment or a different worldview or a different way to do things. There were seasons in my life where I know I did. Maybe you're here today because you experience uh, some of the same things the younger son did too. You chase what you thought would make you happy, fulfilled, only to find it empty. And in some cases, even more than empty, destructive. I know that's, that's my story. If you've never heard my whole story, grew up inside the church, chased a lot of the things that I, similar to the young son, I can relate to him a lot here, that I thought would bring fulfillment, to find them worse than empty, to find them having been destructive. Things I'm still wrestling with and working on today because of that. Maybe you're here this morning because you're looking for a better way. I hope you are. That's what we're trying to do together is take next steps towards, towards uh, God's way because we believe it's better. But maybe you're also assuming the same thing the younger son assumes. I haven't lived like God wants me to. I've done damage to myself and others, so I will go back to God, but as someone who is less than. I have sinned against heaven and against God, and so I can no longer be called a son or a daughter. I have sinned against heaven and against God, and so obviously that will stay with me, define who I am. I think a lot of us find our way back to church or to God or to wherever space we are religiously through that lens, down that path, viewing ourselves as, I need to do something different and better, but my past will come with me, which is why I love, Dave, some of the things you said this morning. But how does the story actually end? The young son heads back, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast to celebrate. 
For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now is found. And so they began to celebrate. I think it's easy to read parables, especially like this one that you may have heard before, and not actually let this moment sink in. Just imagine for a second that you're the younger son. Again, you day earlier, however long it takes to walk from where he was back to his village, you've been sleeping in a pig pen. You have literally no money, not even enough to eat, so you smell, look, and you smell and look like you just slept in a pig pen, right? You left giving the double middle finger to your dad. Sorry, I know there are kids here. I wish I had not used that metaphor until I just went all the way through with it. So I really apologize for that. It's embarrassing. Point stands, but I could have done it more tactfully. It started coming out of my mouth, and I'm like, stop. And I couldn't. Sorry. Um, you left telling your dad, hey, I know how to do this thing better. Oh, God, that's embarrassing. I'm going to have to live with that one for a little bit. Okay. All right. Bring us back. Bring us back. You, you left telling everybody, hey, I know a better way. I'm out of here. I wish you were dead. I don't like this whole insult thing is dumb. I got a better way. I'm going to Best Sean. Let's do that. Only to walk back in looking like you just woke up in a pig pen, starving, dirty, filthy, smelly, and, and you're walking. So you've got to walk up the path to get to Chorazim or wherever. Your expectation is that dad is, is that, that you're good, that your expectation is that dad is furious, that he's rejected you, that, that, there's the, that, that the pain that you caused him is still going to be lingering there. There's no way you don't expect that. And so you're walking up telling yourself, as soon as I see him, I'm going to apologize. As soon as I see him, I'll fall on the ground and tell him I have sinned against you and against heaven. As soon as I see him, I'm going to just beg for his forgiveness. And maybe if I do that, he'll let me be a servant because at least then I'll have food. That's the young son's space as he's walking up the path. But it's not his experience, is it? As soon as, one, don't miss the fact that the father was watching for him. His son had been gone for quite a while. We don't know how long, doesn't say, but a significant amount of time, enough to squander an entire inheritance, so not just a day or two, a while. And yet, the father's watching, hoping that someday his son's going to come walking back up the path. And this was the day. He sees the son come up the path, and he, instead of him having, the son having to beg for forgiveness, he throws open his arms he says, welcome back, let's eat some steak, which I gotta imagine would be good. We open today by saying we're going to talk about one of the simplest concepts in the Bible. And this is it. God wants you to come back to him. He's waiting. He's watching. He's hoping. You may have done things like the young son done and, and essentially said to God, I wish you were dead. Or I wish I didn't have to do things the way you want me to. Or I think there's a better way, so forget your way. And yet he functions like a father waiting for you to come home. Many of us assume that if we've done those things, that we have to do something to make it up to God. We have to be good enough for long enough or whatever that might be, and then maybe God will accept us back. 
We say it here a lot. Many of us have a concept of God like Zeus, as an angry God that if you don't serve him the right way, you get zapped. But what the Bible portrays over and over again is not Zeus, but a father longing and waiting for his kids to return. He wants you to come back because he wants what's best for you. And even though you may have said, I think there's a better way out there and I'm going to go chase after that, rather than being resentful or needing to prove that back, he says, hey, we just learned that that wasn't the best. Let's try it a different way. See, throughout Scripture, the simple message is you can be forgiven no matter what. Completely forgiven. Completely just by walking back. It's that simple. It's honestly one of the most straightforward, simple concepts in all of Scripture. That complete and total forgiveness is available to you by just walking back. It's said in so many different places, in so many different ways, in such clear language. And, like we had also said, it's one of the hardest things for us to believe. Many of us view our journey back to God like the younger son. I'll go back, but my guilt will keep me down. I'll go back as a servant, not a son. I'll go back and be less than, less than fully part of this insula family. And yet God says over and over and over again, that's not how this thing works. Many of us live our faith lives out of a place of guilt. I've done things wrong, and I need to feel guilty for that. There's a really important concept, and the language is mine, so there may be defined in different spaces. I think there's a difference between guilt and conviction. I think the enemy works in guilt. What guilt says is you have messed up, so there's no way back. You have screwed up too badly, and so to get back to where you were or to a good place is impossible. You've, you've damaged relationships, you've lost resources, you've hurt yourself, you've hurt others, you're guilty, and there's no way back. I think that's how the enemy works. Constantly, constantly telling us, you've messed up, so there's no way back. But I think God uses a different concept, similar, but subtly and dramatically different. Call it conviction. If guilt says you've messed up so there's no way back, conviction says you've messed up so please come back. See the difference there? If guilt says you've messed up so there's no way back, conviction says you've messed up so please come back. You've gone and experienced the pain that happens when we don't do things the way we were created to do them. You've gone and experienced that, sure, this community loves you while you have resources, but as soon as you don't, you're not even more valuable than their pigs. Convic guilt says you're not going to be able to go back because there's no way it can get back to where it was. Conviction is what the Father is doing here. Yes, we didn't want you to be there, but as soon as you come back, you're welcome. Please come back. So much of our faith life roots out of this idea. Everything changes when we start to view God through this lens, as a, as a, as a, as a father who fully values us. 
It'll shape how the rest of your faith life works. If you live out of a space of guilt, you've screwed up so there's no way back, the entirety of your faith life is going to be proving that you're worthy of something, which is not what Scripture gives to us. If, on the other hand, you are fully valuable, that God says, I want you back, you've messed up, so please come back, we operate out of this place of being fully valuable to God. That's not where we have to put our energy anymore. Where it comes from, then, is we root there so that we can take steps out into other spaces to say, how do we flourish in this space now? I've been forgiven. I am valuable. I have son or daughtership in the family. So let's make this family flourish. Everything changes then. God's no longer Zeus judge who wants to zap you for screwing up. He's a father that says, I want to teach you what the best way looks like. You're no longer trying to earn forgiveness. You have it, so now let's find flourishing. Everything shifts on that particular space. Understanding how, sorry, it's one of the easiest concepts in the Bible but one of the hardest to accept because it just feels out of balance. We realize the things that we've done. There's another parable that Jesus tells. It's called the parable of the unmerciful servant. There's this guy. I'm going to paraphrase it because we don't have time to read it. There's this guy who owes his master an insanely large debt, knows he can't pay it back. And so he goes to the master and begs for mercy. I can't pay this back, and he's forgiven forgiven this massive debt. Now, unfortunately, in this guy's case, he then goes to somebody who owes him less money. That person also asks him for forgiveness, and he won't give it. The point of the parable is this, that by, that if, by understa understanding what God has done for us, understanding that we are and have been forgiven, is the fuel that motivates us to be able to forgive each other. Realizing that we live in a system that isn't fair because God has forgiven more than we could carry creates a system in which we do the same for each other. It's hard for us to accept the fact that we didn't have to do anything to be made right again. It's hard for us then to put that into practice towards each other as well. We've been talking about forgiveness for the last month and a half, about forgiving each other, about releasing debt, about reconciling in those spaces. It's an incredibly hard concept because it's, it, it's layered, it's complex, it's difficult, there's tensions, it's inherently unfair. Forgiveness is unfair. You owe me something and I'm going to release it. It's going to require us for our rest of our lives to wrestle with what that looks like in all of those spaces. But I want to close this section on forgiveness by just reiterating what we, we just talked about. That wrestling doesn't work right unless we realize that we have been forgiven. That we walk this faith life together because God has already paid that debt We've already been invited back into the community. We already have inherent value as sons and daughters. That we don't go back as servants or less than, but we go back fully integrated into the community of God. And from that space, we wrestle with each other on how we do that towards one another, 
to create the kind of insular communities that are always looking out for each other and working together to flourish in the way that God desires. If you're here today because you've experienced the hardships of life, that you've chased down the things that you thought would bring fulfillment and haven't, we'll close with Dave's words. I had different ones, but yours were better. Jesus doesn't care about my past. He does, in one sense, of course, as a valuable person that you are, but not in the way that says you have to earn it back. As soon as you take that step back, the Father runs out to you with open arms, says, let's eat steak. So next time you eat steak, think of that. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to thank you this morning for the, for the message that we see inside the prodigal son. So many of us in one way or another to different extremes have gone and chased the things that we thought were better. And unfortunately, so often we've found them to be lacking or harmful or even destructive in certain cases. God, we pray that we are convicted in those areas, that we realize that there are certain things that we can do that cause harm. You call that sin. There are certain things that can cause harm to ourselves or to others that can have rippling effects in those spaces. That's real. But we pray that you silence the message of guilt that says you've done those things so there's no way back. And instead, we can hear your invitation of saying, sure, we've done those things. Let's recognize that as real, so please come back. Amen.